stories of economic growth, job creation, and business success from across the 11-county community of Northern Delaware, Southern New Jersey, and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Now, here's Matt Gabry. So in the greater Philadelphia region, the energy sector is one of those areas where everybody is kind of excited. They have a vision for what it could become. They know there's a great foundation on which to build, and not just in the energy sector, but there's a ripple effect to lots of other industries that rely on the energy sector. And one of the key elements in this environmental and energy space is providing really good counsel. And we're very fortunate to have one of those really good counselors, Jim O'Toole from Buchanan Ingersoll. Jim, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Matt, for uh, inviting me on. Absolutely. So Jim, share with us a little bit about Jim O'Toole, where you live, where you grew up, and that kind of journey that has found you where you are today. Believe me, it is a journey. So I'm a Philly boy, grew up in Northeast Philadelphia until we eventually made our way to the Burbs in Taconi. Nice. You know, otherwise known as St. Leo's Parish, for those of you in Philadelphia. Yeah. And I ended up uh, going to LaSalle College High School, LaSalle College. I got my business degree there and moved on into the chemical industry, believe it or not, for Mm. a couple of years. Traveled around the uh, the country and in Canada doing marketing research, sales. Left there and uh, went to another institution, Drexel University, got my MBA. I taught there and was teaching uh, marketing there and at uh, Philly Community College taught economics, statistics, and of course, you know, I was born to go to school, so on to Temple Law School. Nice. And continued uh, my education there, then moved into the practice of law. Originally, with Saul Ewing, you know, a nice institution here in Philadelphia. Married for a number of years to my lovely wife, Maureen, 33 years. We have four kids. Excellent. And I love that journey that you just described, because it's really interesting. And the nuggets that we get to pull out of these conversations, I had no idea, frankly, that you really started out in a marketing and business type of uh, focus. Exactly. Did you always kind of know that you were going to head into this space related to the legal community? So that's a funny question. So yeah, I'll just give you a quick story. So I was in about like fifth or sixth grade, right? And they they give you these tests, what do you want to be when you grow up tests, which are sort of what your aptitudes are supposed to be like. And so I took the test and the results come back and uh, right up there, number one was a lawyer Mm -hmm. and number two was forest ranger. (laughs) And uh, here's a a kid growing up in Philly. I think we had one tree on our entire two blocks and they're going to give me a forest ranger. And I'm gathering there's folks today in the legal community, you probably thought I should be out in the forest and stay out there. But, <laughs> That's right. but nonetheless, yeah. So law came early to me, it came circling back, and but I always wanted to approach it. Uh, and as we have in the energy space that we created at Buchanan, coming from a business standpoint, I mean, I think too many times, you know, you find yourself with you know lawyers who are just speaking another language and are not really relating back to the business aspects of what's right. going on in the law. And that's how I ended up at Buchanan, having an opportunity to really start from the ground up an energy uh, practice there with some terrific folks. Uh, We're about 450 lawyers nationally, some terrific folks out of Pittsburgh. And so with that group, we sort of had this vision of combining legal Mm -hmm. and business and the uh, government relations aspects, Mm -hmm. because in the energy space, as you probably know, I mean, everybody has an opinion on what's going on there. So there's a very strong component for both government relations as well as the legal aspects of it. And that's how we approach it at Buchanan. That's how we formed the energy group. That makes sense. And I want to dive into that a little bit more. But before we do, Jim, I do want to come back because it's not one of those things that's lost on me. The value you got out of working before going to law school. And if you don't mind me asking, how much time passed, if you will, before, you know, you went to LaSalle, 
You went to Drexel sure. and then Temple Law. Yeah. So to answer your question, I have to tie it back to my parents, right? So they were wonderful people. I had a great childhood with these guys, but always you had to have a job. That was the deal. So I, I told my kids, I think I've had something like 28 different jobs in my life. That's you know, cool. You I, could write a book. I'm sure I could, but I'm not sure it's going to be all that interesting. <laughs> but nonetheless, because some of those jobs <laughs> were really not that great. But what it did was, I think it got you sort of focused on how to get along with people, how to make opportunities happen. And so what I did was I went back to law school. I was probably in my late 20s, you know, and so I didn't actually start practicing until I was about 30 years old, you know, having already done a boatload of stuff uh, in the educational side. But that work experience that you gained between 22 and early 30s really was an education in itself and prepared you to navigate lots of different challenges. That's absolutely right. I mean, but I I can even tell you that even before then, and it's going to sound silly, but I remember working for a guy, Sal Bicello. I was working in a sandwich shop. It was at Plymouth Meeting, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there early on. I get to make sandwiches. So I start making this sandwich and it was just, it was a crappy sandwich. It was not look good. And he comes over and he says, you're not putting enough soul or heart in that sandwich. Hmm. And he sits down and he shows me, you know, know, how you can make a great sandwich, right? And then people will love it, right? So this is going to sound stupid, but the reality is making a great sandwich and building a really great business are pretty much the same thing. You really are taking the pieces, you're putting them together so that the end customer is really going to be just, you know, wowed by your effort. And it just requires a whole lot of time and effort to put into it. You got to care. I was just going to say that. And the correlation is not that crazy, actually, Jim. And what caught my ear was the heart and soul Absolutely. that Sal shared with you. Absolutely. Say, whether it's a sandwich or whether it's a company or whether it's a law practice or whatever you're embarking on, you got to bring that heart and soul. Oh, every day. If you're not, then you really should check out and uh, you know go sit in the forest and be a forest ranger. That's right. And I know you're kidding about that, but I, I do want to come back. That fifth grade aptitude test you took and it came back sure. lawyer and forest ranger. It did. It actually does tie in a little bit to what you're doing today because you're working in that environmental space through the energy practice team at Buchanan That's right. as a lawyer. Yeah. That's exactly right. And to ask me how I ended up in environmental law is just, you know, you can never plan these things. Right. Because I started out doing in commercial and litigation as well as uh, doing antitrust work. I worked for the Federal Trade Commission for the summer when I was in, uh, in D.C. when I was in law school. And that sort of took me down a different path. But all of a sudden, opportunities present themselves and one thing leads to another and you follow it. And suddenly you end up in a really interesting space for me it was, which was the environmental law, which was dealing with the regulations that also had a public policy aspect as well as litigation. And to apply that in a sort of a business type approach, it was just terrific. That really set the foundation for when I came over to Buchanan and I started to lay out a vision of, you know, what we wanted to do with energy. Because we had these energy department. We had you know, a coal practice that dated 100 years. We mm-hmm. had an emerging oil and gas practice, which we're going to talk about today. Right. We had a, a utility practice. We had all these like silos. But the right. question was, how do you bring them all together? How do you get people working together? And right. how do you then give the best product to the clients so that they ultimately, your clients are going to get top-notch legal services as well as some of the science and other things that go with it? And that's, that was sort of the vision of creating the energy department at Buchanan. That makes perfect sense, Jim. And folks, we're talking with Jim O'Toole. He's with Buchanan Ingersoll, a law firm that operates right here in greater Philadelphia and uh, across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's actually Buchanan, Ingersoll, and And Rooney, which I know has proud headquarters out of Pittsburgh. That's correct. And a very significant and dominant presence here in the greater Philadelphia region. And Jim, I want to dive in and pivot into some of the details around the energy space because we're producing a special series in partnership with our 
Chamber of Commerce, Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team. You are very involved in that, but you're also uniquely qualified. And I just want to touch on this for a moment as we dive into the specifics of this topic. You actually founded and co-managed Buchanan Ingersoll's Integrated Energy Environmental Utility and Natural Resources Practices at the law firm. And that touches on lots of different things like oil and gas and coal and power generation, renewable energy, utility and environmental practice groups. So when I say you're uniquely qualified, I'm not kidding. Well, believe me, thanks. I appreciate that. But, you know, within our practice, we have enormous amounts of talent, both here and in Pittsburgh and on the West Coast, and even as far up and down the East Coast as well. We're down into Florida and move our way all over. Yeah. So we have a lot of really great, talented people. So the success, and there has been a substantial success with our efforts in the energy space, are really in large measure due to the quality of the individuals for the institution. I was just fortunate enough to be able to be there at the right time and help pull them together and along with some others to try to make a uh, business out of it. Absolutely. It's all about collaboration and teamwork, and that's what we're experiencing at GPEAT as well through our chamber team. Totally correct. So as we dive into this, Jim, I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit about some of the developments that we're seeing in the energy sector that's taking place, because there is a little bit of a kind of a resurgence, if you will. There's an excitement around the energy sector in greater Philadelphia. Sure. I mean, this is unexpected, right? So I would start, I mean, you can't talk about the energy sector in Philly without talking about the broader disruption in the energy markets that are going on because of natural gas. Right. It's just that simple. I mean, it's not to say that all things emanate from natural gas, but I think you can draw a lot of correlations between the two. So Pennsylvania, for those of who don't know in your audience, Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia occupy what's called the Marcellus and Utica region for natural gas development. Yep, and they're rock formations. It is rock formations basically of old dead dinosaurs and other carbon material that has stored up gas for, you know, millennia. Yep. And now as a result of being able to go in and target drill or horizontal drill these formations, you're able to extract enormous amounts of natural gas mm-hmm. that was unheard of. This whole region is now number two producer of natural gas in the country, we as a country are heading toward world domination of natural gas production, both domestically and for export overseas. So you have this disruptive force of natural gas coming on. And what does that do? Right. Well, what it does is it starts to displace a couple of things. So when you talk about natural gas, you have methane, the stuff that's in your home that you turn on your stove mm-hmm. or your heater, and you've got these liquids, you know, ethane, butane, propane. Let's talk about just the methane for a second, the right. stuff that you turn on. What that does is you can now use that, and it's being used in uh, to displace coal as a major source of energy production, for electric energy production, both here and in the United States. It's just an amazing transformation in a very short period of time where you have a lot of natural gas taking over old, inefficient, and environmentally challenged coal facilities, bringing on this new technology. It's a cleaner technology. And it really, what that does then, having natural gas-fired electricity, that enables you to start that vision of building out the renewables market which is what everybody has an interest in trying to do. Why? Because they were made for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, Back to the sandwich, this is ham and cheese. Why? Because you've got renewables that wind doesn't blow every day right. and the sun doesn't shine at night. So what you need to do is have a ready, available, and steady form of electricity to be available, what's called the base load, to cover the amount of electricity necessary that we as Pennsylvanians have come to depend on. You know, for example, when the tree falls on the line of some of your listeners and some Suddenly, they're without electricity. You know what a devastating effect that could have. Totally. And so you need to have a reliable source of that energy, and natural gas has sort of filled that gap. 
In Pennsylvania, we're also fortunate to have nuclear energy as well, right? And which makes up almost forty percent of the uh, of the generation capacity. So you, you've got this energy disruption going on because you have natural gas disrupting coal, mm-hmm. forming the basis to bring in renewables and expand the renewable market because of its backbone within the grid, and also backstopping some of the old nuclear facilities that are going out of service. Right. And I love that you use the word reliable. And I would add two more that won't surprise you because I know it's part of your day-to-day nomenclature, but not only does it need to be reliable, it needs to be accessible. Correct. And it needs to be affordable. And that's exactly what the access to this gas coming out of the Utica Marcellus Shale has been able to do, it sounds like. Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, in terms of the savings that Pennsylvanians have already reaped on their gas bills is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that. You're seeing a reduction. And I know that there's a lot of angst around the question of greenhouse gases. And I know that, you know, natural gas is certainly not a neutral greenhouse gas producing fuel. But the reality is you're never going to get to the levels of renewables that people are expecting and want to start to drive toward. I mean, just for example, Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania, you only have 5% of the total generation capacity in Pennsylvania is attributed to renewables, 5%. Right. So you want to have a stable market for electricity. You simply can't turn that switch on tomorrow and say, you know, let's put another 200,000 solar panels up or another couple thousand wind turbines. That's going to occur over time. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But you need a transition fuel to maintain that stability, and that's where natural gas comes in. You also need a transition fuel, and tell me if I'm off base here, to actually make it so. We need these fuels to build the future energy assets that will, I don't know if we ever would replace gas and other kinds of fossil Fossil fuels, but to certainly enhance the complementary service that's provided by renewables like solar and wind. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're never going to have the kind of uh, solar and wind development that is sort of envisioned. And so the governor, for example, is coming out with a number of different initiatives. There's a solar initiative Mm -hmm. to try to move the needle on solar, which is, I think, at best, maybe 1.3% of the generation of capacity in Pennsylvania's solar, which is virtually nothing, Right. to try to move the needle on that. We have a, a much greater on the wind side, but the only way you can have those kind of big policy changes, in other words, to have that disruption in the marketplace, is to have a baseload solid fuel that's going to be there for the next 100 years, and that's where natural gas steps in. So, folks, we're talking with Jim O'Toole. He's just a kid from Northeast Philadelphia, from St. Leo's Parish. Exactly. Who made sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. who made sandwiches in Plymouth Meeting. He's done pretty good for himself because he's now part of the Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney team, part of their energy practice. And, Jim, I want to pivot to opportunity. Because access to this gas, whether it's LNG, other kinds of fossil fuels, but mostly this gas resource that we have. And to your point, we're very fortunate. There's a benefit to coming out of the Pennsylvania community, the Ohio, West Virginia community as well. But it is creating an opportunity for business growth, business attraction, not only here in greater Philadelphia, but in other regions of our community as well. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, so we talked about natural gas, but the other sort of the other part of that is natural gas liquids. As I said, this butane, propane, mm-hmm. the, the building blocks, if you will, for, for the chemical industry and for the plastics industry. So you have these natural gas and liquids 
essentially leading the way for an industrial revolution, a new industrial revolution. As you probably know, the industrial revolution in the United States began here in Philadelphia. This is the, the birthplace of the industrial revolution. That's it's right. the birthplace of the chemical industry in the United States here in Philadelphia, right in Marcus Hook, right outside Philadelphia. Right. So all of this is now sort of coming full circle. You're now getting you know, a new industrial revolution. And what you want to do is you want to use these resources that are Pennsylvania-based, you know, mm-hmm. these gas and these liquids, you want to use Pennsylvania resources to benefit Pennsylvania working folks. I mean, right. that's really what you want to do. Right. And so those opportunities are coming in, you know, a number of different ways. Let's talk about the big ones mm-hmm. and then maybe some of the smaller ones that we're, you know, we're working with at GPEAT, and that's the Greater Philadelphia Energy Action Team, a terrific yep. organization run by the chamber that involves the entire business community, frankly, on energy issues. We didn't have this before, and it's essential to see the, the kind of economic growth that we want to get out of this opportunity from natural gas and other energy sources. you got to have it through GP. So, but, but you have a thought. Absolutely. And I love that you're incorporating GP into our conversation because it is this coming together of not just energy companies, but professional services firms who all are working towards a common goal of maximizing the energy sector in greater Philadelphia for the greater good, to your point, to benefit Pennsylvanians, New Jerseyans, Delawareans, and frankly, other communities that we can support through exporting when it's appropriate and reasonable to do that as well. And I love that you referenced big opportunities and, you know, some that may not be as big because not every opportunity that we're going to engage around is a big opportunity. I know it's all relative. Correct. And I'd love for you to expand on that thinking of what is a big opportunity? Yeah, I mean, so the big opportunities, it's really, if you want to start thinking big, and I think a lot of people do want to continue to think big about this, is to basically use these resources to create a new Gulf uh, processing plants that you normally find on the Gulf Coast Mm -hmm. to start to create those opportunities here in this region. And there's every reason to think that you want to have a secondary source than to have is shipping all of your gas or your petroleum into the Gulf Coast. I mean, that certainly is going to be our major source for the United States, but there's good reasons to be close to home here. And what this will inevitably start to blossom into mm-hmm. is, and we're starting to see it now with Shell Cracker coming on and taking these liquids, mm-hmm. right, and making them into value-added propositions and materials for the plastics and chemical industry. So you're really starting with the big picture tickets going to be petrochemicals, mm-hmm. right? If you could ask for the Christmas wish list yeah. of economic development, you would have modern petrochemical facilities operating certainly in the state hopefully in the region, which can take our abundance of natural gas liquids as well as this cheap energy Mm -hmm. that we're getting in the form of electricity and take them to the next level to let's use them vertically instead of just shipping out the material for someone Mm -hmm. else to get the benefit of. Why not create jobs? Why not create the economic opportunity here? So petrochemicals, I think, is high on my list. Gotcha. The second I think you would sort of look to is what's called LNG, right? Liquefied natural gas. Okay. So a lot of folks probably have already seen that PGW is already putting forth a nice project proposal to do an LNG facility for domestic use that can be used in any number of applications. Yep. We can also tell you that there's at least two, if not three other developers that are looking at this gas, this plentiful gas Mm -hmm. and looking to either use it domestically or to move it overseas. So you've got a project up in the northeastern Pennsylvania, which is a big part of the Marcellus, a lot of gas past Scranton area. Sure. So that gas is not getting used, not enough pipes to move it out of there. So people are starting to think about creating opportunities there for LNG, take that gas, actually liquefy it, move it either by rail or by truck to the coast, 
And uh, there's a project now that's actually underway that's going to be doing that and taking it to the Caribbean where they can regasify and create electricity much cheaper than if you were using fuel sources. Right. You know? And helping communities there the same way we're helping communities in, in our region. Enormously, because the, the price of energy is doing nothing but declining as a result of that. You've also right. got another LNG facility. It's potentially going to be up and running uh, down in the Marcus Hook area. They've been working through to move a bunch of this liquefied natural gas yep. to Asian and European markets to yep. ultimately service them. You know, what really struck me is when I heard heard that Boston, right, mm-hmm. is buying LNG from the Soviet Union to power Boston's economy. I thought there is something incredibly wrong with that. Right. Right. I mean, why are we not using the kinds of resources that we have here to bring down those exorbitant costs that are up in Boston for electricity and other markets that don't have access to this fuel? So when we start to think about big. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about petrochemical development. We're thinking about using high LNG development. We're thinking about manufacturing facilities that need uh, intensive electricity. Right. These are the kind of big projects. But then you get small projects. Yeah. Right. So we're not just all big focus. The GPEAT is now focusing in on doing what we call infill projects. Okay. So you take these old abandoned sites that historically were manufacturing sites. Mm-hmm. Old Man- industrial spaces. Yeah. All brownfields, many of them already contaminated. The beauty of those, they're sitting right on the grid. They have access to electric power. They have access oftentimes to rail. So they're wonderful facilities for developing new economic opportunities. And so we're looking at projects you know, along those lines to sort of of geared towards smaller development on smaller sites in the biopharmaceuticals we're targeting, aerospace and defense industry opportunities we're targeting. We we talked about chemicals, but sort of smaller scale chemical facilities, food processing and manufacturing, all of which need a lot of energy to operate. They're going to be sitting here with the opportunity of both tying into natural gas and also having great electrical uh, opportunities as well because of low cost electricity. Yeah. Give me an example of what's a success. Kimberly Clark, right? Sure. Right, perfect example. I mean, there's a company that could have easily and probably would have moved its facilities. were coal-fired facilities they were doing to make paper. But what they did is they wanted to stay here. They liked the workforce they had here. They liked the opportunities and the access to the market. And so through a cooperative venture that's working with the utilities, working with government, working with uh, businesses like ours, cooperatively coming together, finding a solution for uh, powering that facility by natural gas, you saved a boatload of jobs. So it's good for the jobs of the community. It's good for the taxes of the community. And frankly, it's good for the local economy. Absolutely. And I just want to put a fine point on what you just described with the Kim Lee Clark project, because frankly, as part of our GPEAT series, we've had the great privilege of talking about Kimberly Clark with both the team at New Jersey Resources and also with the team at PICO, Mike and Senzo, right? Terrific folks. And you're absolutely right, though, around all of this, Jim, in that it's a collaborative effort. We all have to work together to bring about some positive solutions so that we can save 600 jobs in a community like Chester, Delaware County that really needs to save 600 jobs and, and frankly double those jobs into additional ones. So that infrastructure of the energy assets are so key to that. And I want to build on that for a moment because you've been talking about rail and a, and highway and a couple other things. And what struck me a moment ago when you shared insight around the Industrial Revolution that started 
right here in the greater Philadelphia region over 100 years ago, and now we're seeing a renaissance of that. But the initial industrial revolution, from my view, actually provided us with what I would call very unique assets that we oftentimes take for granted, and that is a very robust infrastructure of pipelines and rail and other kinds of uh, support that allows us to build on that foundation. And I'd love for you to expand on that aspect of what makes this region so unique when it comes to our infrastructure assets? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, this region was born to be a manufacturing juggernaut, frankly. And so you've got at least two class one rail lines already here to take materials throughout the United States. You've got access to a port facility that continues to do nothing but get better and better and have more and more development, you know, thanks to the efforts uh, of the folks here in Philadelphia as well as the state to broaden the opportunities at the port and to bring in and to make it available for international markets, especially with the new expansion of the Panama Canal. You're now able Mm -hmm. to take, and and the economics are actually going to work, you can take chemicals here. You can take natural gas in a liquefied state from here, and you can move that material right out of Philadelphia in a port, or yeah. just south of Philly in a port. You can move that all the way around the world and still make money. That would never have occurred before. And the reason why you can do that is because you've got terrific facilities and infrastructure already in place you know, that needs, frankly, to get more opportunity to use it. I mean, we have a horse that could run a race here like you can't believe, right? We have secretariat mm-hmm. in the form of, but we're not running like secretariat because we just simply don't have the amount of opportunities yet to, to really demonstrate what the potentials are in Philadelphia in this region for building up manufacturing other capabilities, trading on those resources that we have here. Mm-hmm. But there's there are some things we can do to sort of advance the ball, if you will, yeah. to make that happen. So this isn't really just about you know, marketing efforts. It really does get to the heart and soul of what this community wants in a balancing act that we're trying to achieve here. I mean, there's no loss on anyone that there was, there was environmental consequences mm-hmm. of the past industrialization within this region. There's, it's not lost on anyone. Sure. But by the same token, we're not talking about your father's Buick anymore. I mean, the types of opportunities that to put in facilities now and the level of environmental sophistication that goes with them is second to none. Right. We're talking but, about George Jeff. Jetson's flying car. It's exactly right. I mean, you're, <laughs> right. Right? you're talking about George Jetson, right? So the notion here that you want to build on that is that you've got to acknowledge the environmental, what's called externalities. These are the, the implications or the things, the impacts to our society as a result of activities that we're undertaking for manufacturing, for example. Right. No one's telling anybody to ignore those, but it is a balancing act because, as I said earlier, you know, you got 5% renewables running a grid here where people want to wake up every day and put their toaster on and have the toast come out, right? Right. So that's not going to occur overnight. You're going to need to continue to try to build and demonstrate the political and community support for what I call, and not just me, everybody, is all of the above energy policy. Right. Right. We don't have an energy policy. Per se, and we haven't had one in the United States forever. And certainly in this region, we're now trying to develop one. But the idea here is that you're relying and you're trying to get the community to buy in on an all the above philosophy. You're going to have nuclear energy as part of that process. You're mm-hmm. going to have, frankly, some coal that's not going to disappear overnight right. in transition. You're going to have the emergence of natural gas moving it forward. And then you're going to be bringing in greater and greater amounts of wind and solar developed in Pennsylvania for the power here, but you're Mm -hmm. going to also be looking to import that. 
right. from other places because Pennsylvania is a competitive energy market, allowing you to not necessarily slap a bunch of solar panels on every roof here and get what you want to achieve. You might be achieving that by simply buying it from the Midwest or other places where it's more efficient. So you want to try to get this all-the-above energy philosophy you know, embedded with the community as opposed to having us versus them. Because we're living in an us versus them world in the energy space. Right. That is completely not productive. Right. And I don't mean just, you know, productive from the manufacturing standpoint. I don't think it's productive for the citizens of Pennsylvania to have that, that sort of confrontational notion that you have to either have the environment or you have to have manufacturing and you can't have both. Right. I, I happen to believe you can have both. And I want to dive into that a little bit more, Jim, because there is this balance, this what I would call a complementary relationship between renewables and traditional fossil fuels Correct. that I know you've referenced a couple times, but it seems to be intensifying. You know, New Jersey is investing in offshore wind farms. The city of Philadelphia recently signed a purchase power agreement for solar. You referenced that the governor in uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has an emphasis on solar as well. Correct. How are these trends in this renewable energy space going to continue to evolve? Is it going to be slow going? Is it going to be a game changer? Is it, as we've been talking about, kind of complementary? So if I had the crystal ball Mm -hmm. and, you know, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be, you know, on my own island, you know, with my own yacht. But the the answer is I don't know. But I can tell you sort of, you know, where we start looking at the studies, that are, where they're going to take us. And I think you can sort of gauge a recent McKinsey study demonstrates that around 2035, 2040 in mm-hmm. that area, mm-hmm. the world is going to reach a, a tipping point, if you will, where you're going to move from essentially fossil fuel driven uh, power and predominant electricity to renewables. Now, most of that's going to occur is in China okay. and in India and places around the world that frankly need to really up their game on their infrastructure to avoid having the kind of environmental catastrophes that have befallen a number of those countries. But in the United States, you're going to have a sort of a different mix. I think in the long term, you're still going to have a lot of renewable being developed. Offshore wind is going to consistently continue to be developed. There used to be a high cost associated with that. The technology now, much like everything else, has evolved. Mm-hmm. The cost associated with that is uh, coming down. The productive capacity is going up. So you're going to see renewables continuing to evolve that way. Right. Battery technology is yep. going to be the next world that makes renewables sort of ultimately displace, in some degree, fossil fuels over the, the long haul. Right. But in the short term, and I say the short term meaning my children's lives, you know, and I have, you know, my kids are in their 20s now and in their yeah. 30s. In their lives, they're going to see more and more renewables. They're going to see that new battery technology, but they're still going to see a lot of power here being generated because of the abundance, again, I'm talking like a broken record, yeah, but no, the abundance not of natural gas, it's just is too economically useful. Yep, and advantageous. And advantageous sure. to use it, to, yep. to, to simply throw that away and ultimately start to buy or create a power system that's expensive and frankly not sustainable. If you want new business, Right. If you want folks to be able to spend less on their paycheck every month on their electric bill or on their gas bill, right. you got to develop these resources so that you can then expand on them. So, Jim, I want to play devil's advocate, sure. not necessarily with you, but with a theory that you kind of just referenced. And, folks, we're talking with Jim O'Toole. He's part of the Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney team, a law firm headquartered right here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania with big operations in the greater Philadelphia community. Timing. You know, you referenced a moment ago that there's some kind of perspective here that by 2040 type of time frame, we're going to start to see renewables be 
Is it more dominant? Clearly be more dominant. And frankly, I mean, if it's... But, but if, not 50%, more like a 20 to 30% potentially? Or? Well, it will, it, so in many countries, it'll tip to 50% mark. I mean, wow. you're, you're going to have... I mean, so for example, if you want to think about where the electric vehicle market's going to go, and so far afield from making my sandwich here in Philly, but we're in China now. Right. And we're looking at a, at a country that is just completely devastated with uh, coal-fired power plants. And so they want to reinvent themselves, you know, and they have the ability, obviously, in the, in the capital to do so. What are right. they doing? They're switching now into a low-cost LNG to change over their energy mix to electric production using LNG, right, gas. Yep. They're going to be moving the electric car generation capacity and absolutely dominating that, if we're not careful, dominating the world electric car manufacturing opportunities. So you're going to see a country like China and India really be sort of moving into a much more electrified, if you will, society. And and that is going to have a dramatic effect. Now, what's the spillover here? Well, the spillover here is there's going to be a greater emphasis to reduce greenhouse gases mm-hmm. in the short term. There's no doubt about it. There, and there is a number of proposals that are out there to set goals. Now, you've, you've heard of the Green New Deal, if you will, that's just been sort of floated out there. And I'm no expert on the Green New Deal, and I'm not sure. here to, to have a debate about the Green New Deal, which, is, by the way, is not a new proposal. Right. I mean, the concepts have been baked into a number of proposals for years. Yeah. The idea here is that you are going to be moving toward a more green economy, and I think uh, everyone knows that. The question is one of timing. Mm-hmm. So that timing issue can easily go out to 2040 and, and beyond, where you're going to be having those balances still of using fossil fossil fuels in a lesser degree and having greater emphasis on renewables. But you're never going, from my perspective, you're never going to be able to get that renewable market where you want to get it to and and where I think a lot of folks will feel comfortable here unless you have some backstops to Mm -hmm. to make sure that that electric grid stays energized and charged. And again, you wake up in the morning, you turn the lights on, or at night when you turn the lights on, those lights go on. We've grown accustomed to that. And frankly, I think in the near term, we're going to continue to push for fossil fuels as well as renewables to, to make those lights go on. I want to talk about frustrations for a moment, Jim, and a couple wrap-up kind of thoughts here related to frustrations and where we think things will be and what we can do moving down the road. And you referenced this from a business development, business attraction perspective, and I know that you totally appreciate that the work we do at Select Greater Philadelphia as part of our Chamber of Commerce for Greater Philadelphia is business attraction. Absolutely. How do we raise awareness about our assets here so that we can bring new companies and new jobs and new talent to this community? But it is this frustration that I have around, we can market the region all we want, but if the infrastructure isn't where it needs to be, and frankly, we have great infrastructure, but we just need it to be a little bit better at times when we're talking about attracting those big game-changing companies that rely on energy and it's a slow process to make that happen. That's one of my frustrations, and it I'd is. love to hear if it's yours or do you have others. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's like a chicken and egg problem we have here, right? right. I mean, so we have this abundance of natural gas and opportunity, but we don't have enough pipelines, frankly, to actually move it to places where it can be used and productively you know, enhanced. So in, in the Philadelphia region in particular, again, that Pennsylvanians you know, use the Pennsylvania gas, you're going to have to move it out of those fields. And there's been a, a lot of opposition around the uh, community about pipelines. And I, it somewhat mystifies me, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. 
because the same folks that are out there now with the signs, and I, and I absolutely agree that they should have every right to, sure, to put their, respect their, their respect everything. But that pipe that they're complaining about, there was a pipe in that same ground for the last hundred years. Right. I mean, it's that same. Now we're putting another pipe in there. Right. But suddenly now that is no longer acceptable. It, that, that just strikes me from a frustrating standpoint. And I think it even gets a little deeper, right? Back in the Obama administration early on, you had an, a full embrace of natural gas. You had an embrace pre-Fukushima of nuclear energy. Right. Right. And suddenly things go out of favor, not because they're not great solutions. They go out of favor because the politics seems to shift. And that's fine. I mean, you can't necessarily control politic as it is, but you can control a couple things. I think you can control and start to demonstrate to the community at large the benefits of these energy opportunities. And to go and, and once the community starts to embrace, you're going to have people from around the world coming here. There's Nobody wants to come to a party that everybody's leaving, right? right. You want to make sure that you're welcoming to the party. I think you have to support that infrastructure development. You have to invest in pipelines. You've got to invest in, in storage facilities. We also have to invest in renewables as well. Nobody's suggesting otherwise. That's but, right. But you need to make these investments, and part of that investment is going to have to come with government help, because sometimes it just simply isn't going to be attractive enough in the investor community. You're going to need leadership. Mm-hmm. Right? And the leadership we're looking to, frankly, is coming out of Harrisburg, at least yep. for Pennsylvania. You want to have established, predictable regulatory environment. You want to wake up and know what the regulations are every day and not to tell your investors that the rug has just gotten pulled out and you have a new set of regulations. You need to know what predictability looks like. Right. You need to expedite permitting. You need to make these things move more efficiently through the permitting process because we have a great DEP. I'm not yep. suggesting otherwise. We have a great sure. PUC. We have great oversight. But the question is one of just streamlining and making it more efficient. Yeah. And then you got to have champions for energy policy and development so that the investment community will see that people are actually excited right. about growing opportunities like we were discussing today with natural gas as well as uh, the cheap electricity that's being produced here. So those things are, have to come together. What you want to do is continue to promote the region as a business-friendly region to both foreign investors as well as domestic investors looking for both direct and indirect investment in natural gas transmission and renewable projects. And you want to also continue to push those downstream manufacturing opportunities, Mm, right? right. The stuff just doesn't get pumped out and then sent overseas or sent down to the Gulf. We want to use it here to enhance the uh, the lives, frankly, and the middle-class opportunities for a number of Pennsylvanians. We need to do that. We need leadership both from, obviously, from Harrisburg, but we need it within the uh, Philadelphia community as well and the business community. And people have to get together to figure out that there's a better way to do this. And and that's exactly what we're trying to do. That's right. I was going to say that's exactly what GPEAT is all about. Correct. And Jim, I love how you captured a lot of those elements. And you're absolutely right. A business-friendly environment is fundamental. I mean, it has to be in place before everything else can happen. So I'm going to put you on the spot with one wrap-up question for you. You can change one thing that would really be a game changer. It would really move the needle. It could be regulatory. It could be image and branding. It could be infrastructure. Whatever keeps you up at night that causes you to say, man, if we could just get this one thing right in our energy and environmental kind of story, what would that one thing be? So there isn't any one thing, but I could tell you, I talked earlier about a tipping point, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and so what frustrates me more than anything is the lack of honest discussion and lack of education about energy in general, you know, within the community. And what frustrates me is that 
some folks are capturing the message, mm-hmm. but not necessarily capturing the whole message. So if I were to sort of have my genie robe on and sort of say, I'm going to get my one wish, I wish that people would stop for a second mm. and that they would listen. They would listen to the full discussion of what energy can be for them and their children in this Pennsylvania marketplace and not necessarily you know, get a knee-jerk reaction to go one way or the other. I think if we have an honest discussion, if we can use the Pennsylvania resources efficiently and effectively for Pennsylvanians, we're going to be able to take this thing to a whole new level. It'll be a game changer. Right. But that doesn't occur, frankly, unless the minds of folks can get wrapped around what the energy opportunities are here in Pennsylvania. That's a perfect way to capture that spirit of education and communication and open-mindedness that can really be a game changer, frankly, not just in the energy sector, but in lots of things in life. (laughs) But it certainly is applicable to what's happening in that energy space in greater Philadelphia. Folks, that's Jim O'Toole. He's with Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. He is actually really expert at this energy space. He was one of the founders and co-managers of the firm's integrated energy, environmental utility, and natural resources practices, and has really had a lot of influence and a lot of exposure to everything that you can imagine when it comes to oil and gas and power generation and environmental issues. And Jim, I want to thank you for taking time out to join us right here on Growing Greater. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate your time. 